Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Not to Beverly Hills, but Beverly Hills, or Beverly Kills. And to find Anthony Kiedis under the bridge at MacArthur Park, you take MacArthur Park until you hit under the bridge. If you want to visit the Whiskey A Go-Go, you head for Sunset Boulevard, past all of the Sunset People and the Sunset Grill and the Sunset Strip until you arrive at maybe the people would be the times or between Clark and Hilldale. And if it's Hollywood Boulevard you're looking for, try the intersection of Heart Attack and Vine, or where Hollywood Swinging crosses Hooray for Hollywood, bearing right off of Hollywood Africa, but making sure to avoid the tempting dead end of celluloid heroes. The Thomas Guide is no longer a glove box tome, but a bottomless box set of recordings, so you can go anywhere that's been sung about. And these are all songs. Lamert Park, La Brea, Ventura Boulevard, Vine Street, Summit Ridge Drive, Boyle Heights, Laurel Canyon Boulevard, El Cerrito Place, Whittier Boulevard, Coldwater Canyon, Studio City, Century City, Bunker Hill, Garden Grove, Echo Park, Pershing Square, Santa Monica, Malibu, Fountain and Franklin, Campo de Encino, and Pico and Sepulveda. You can have memories of El Monte or meet a little old lady from Pasadena. You can visit 64 bars on Wilshire and then have a Central Avenue breakdown. Or you can do the Central Avenue boogie or the Slauson shuffle or you can grab some Pioneer Chicken on Alvarado with Carmelita and then a coffee at the Hollywood Hawaiian Hotel in Desperados under the eaves. Thank you. I'm, uh, my name's Glenn Creason. I'm, I'm actually kind of the uh, representative of map nerds. Um, I'm the... Uh, yeah, I'm the map librarian at uh, Central Library downtown. Um, when I heard about this project, I I thought uh, I'm a native Angelino, and I spend my days reading and talking about maps of LA. And I thought oh, this has got to be good. And after I read it, I was won over. And to see all the people standing back there, it's like seeing the Justice League of America, you know. <laughs> so anyway, this is this is uh, my paragraph. Introduction. The City of Angels has reinvented itself numerous times, and maps continue to seduce, chronicle, and offer insight, even as the internet, satellites, remote sensing, and crowdsourcing have changed their forms and the ways in which they are disseminated. Any map is a curated set of data with representational limitations, what insurance atlases call out-of-coverage areas. That inevitably inspires curiosity, the endless spiral of questions that haunt my dreams. And that's the truth. Latitudes explores some of the hitherto terra incognita of L.A., and the results are thrilling for a map aficionado like myself. Here, I can travel where I never could before. I am able to perambulate past the end of the grid, to fly fish in the L.A. River, to walk in the steps of the undocumented, to accept the ugliness of the places I pass, to embrace the entire city of my birth. In these maps, I can understand the uncertainty of the valley homesteaders, the uneasiness of gay men sitting in a bar fearing a visit from the vice squad, 
I can feel the cycleway beneath my wheels, sit beneath the old sycamore at El Aliso, join a herd of ornery longhorns straggling north, hear the many tongues of our people, and recall the joy of radio voices giving us hope again. I feel awakened to new places and faces, familiar strange as those seen before in a dream. Having journeyed via maps all the way from the old Pueblo on the banks of the Porciuncula River, I find myself home again. Um, my name is Rostin Wu, and I wrote about the naming and unnaming of places. Um, this is the first paragraph of the first essay in the book. Naming Los Angeles. Imagine a point on the surface of the earth, far enough inland that it could not be approached by sea, near a source of water, and close enough to other people that you could em employ them as laborers. Make a mark in the dirt. Face north and walk for an hour. Make another mark. Return to your first point and walk east for an hour. Mark again. Continue with this pattern of walking until you have marked a point in each of the cardinal directions. Mentally draw a line between these four markers. Everything inside the square is your settlement. You will call it El Pueblo de Nuestra Señora La Reina de los Angeles de Porincula, or the town of Our Lady, the Queen of Angels of the Little Portion. You have marked this area out according to the laws of the Indies, the rules of colonization and town planning issued by the Spanish crown in the 16th century. This square, barely five miles across, will grow to be nearly 18 times as large, 469 square miles. To trace the perimeter of the city will one day consume 16 days of continuous walking. But now, in 1781, your settlement is too big to truly inhabit or even imagine in much detail. In all likelihood, you will never revisit those initial markers that you have laid. There are, after all, only 44 people in your group. <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, Nathan Masters, and I wrote about the chaos that is L.A.'s street grid. My story begins uh, long before the first uh, surveyor laid out L.A.'s streets. Even before the first humans arrived, transportation corridors spread across the coastal plain and the adjacent valleys. Pounded into the landscape by the feet of mammoths and other migratory grazers, these primitive highways descended from mountain passes towards watering holes on the coastal plain. One of these early highways led many a Pleistocene beast to its death in the asphalt pits near Wilshire and La Brea. Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Gilmartin. Ugly buildings. <laughs> Ugly buildings are the stock of the people, and they are products of their culture and history. They're kind of like us in a way. They might suffer from financial hardship, or they're growing older and not de dealing with wear and tear well. Some flaunt their ugliness. Some doll themselves up in gaudy, mismatched architectural accents like columns and spires and overly decorated copper drain pipes. Some are cloaked in gallons of plain beige paint so as not to stand out or just to go away. Some are outfitted with intimidating spikes for fear of criminals or bird poop. These ugly buildings are contaminated with problems. They may be tragically out of the realm of human scale, have weird materials stuck all over, are messy, unkempt, or a mismatch of ideas and colors, but they have something else going for them that the architectural gems do not. They are a stealthy, prolific army that no one ever notices or talks about. We drive past, walk by, work in, and take the dog to the vet in ugly buildings. They're the background noise of the city. 
Ugly buildings don't alienate potential participants in their assessment or mocking. Hi there, I'm uh, Teddy Varno, and uh, in my essay, I uh, traced cattle uh, through 19th century Los Angeles and tried to see the city through their eyes. And so what I'm going to do is read a, a piece here that uh, is them dealing with an experience we will all know now, uh, a severe and prolonged drought uh, in the 1860s. So this is how uh, a different Los Angeles dealt with the drought. Okay. Uh, the landscape became now dry and parched, and the earth could no longer sustain the herds. As that first fall turned to winter with no sign of rain, the situation grew desperate. Along the rivers and streams of the prairie, the cattle congregated, clinging wretchedly to the last trickles of water passing over the dusty, cracked ground. They looked to the vaqueros for guidance, but even the horsemen had disappeared. Alongside the drought had come an epidemic of smallpox, and the authorities had instituted a quarantine so that the day-to-day -day operations of the ranchos had ceased and the pastoral system was paralyzed. Emaciated longhorns, walking skeletons, covered in raggedy hides, crowded around the cienegas, the bubbling groundwater springs that formed at the bases of hills and mountains. And here as a mass, they bawled their sharp, long cries of distress, abandoned by a society on the verge of collapse. Some climbed in the hills in search of vegetation, where they were stalked by the great predators of the San Gabriels, the cougars, and the mountain lions, and the grizzly bears, who sensed their distress and hovered around the periphery of the herd to drag away the weak and the famished as their kin looked on helplessly. Further south, the Bavarian settlers at the agricultural colony of Anaheim were forced to post full-time sentinels to guard their croplands from the raging mass of screaming cattle that tried repeatedly to break through to the lush irrigated green they could see just beyond the willows, their last hope for survival. Those who witnessed the next winter would claim it was among the greenest in the living memory of any Angelino, though there were no longer longhorns there to appreciate it. We've been stationed in the children's section, and the last book I saw was about PTSD, and so I'm very happy to, to be out here in the relaxed zone here. My name is Josh Sides. I'm the co-author of an article uh, with Anthea Hartig called Emperors of Dust, The Forgotten Homesteaders of Los Angeles County. Elizabeth Friedrich was 61 years old and short on luck when she and her daughter Lizzie stepped off the train in Los Angeles in 1906. Born in Switzerland, Elizabeth had immigrated with her husband to St. Louis, Missouri in 1880, but he died shortly thereafter, and she was forced to take work as a domestic servant. Struggling to provide for herself and her daughter, Elizabeth's determining eye caught a promotion in the St. Louis Republic that there was free government land to be had in California. Can you imagine? <laughs> Their first stop in Los Angeles was at the land office where Elizabeth identified two adjoining parcels in Topanga Canyon, almost 30 miles away from the Los Angeles land office downtown. She and Lizzie walked the whole day, with all respect to your impressive walk, um, she and Lizzie walked the whole day and into night, pushing through the oak woodlands and chaparral the Santa Monica Mountains until they found the lots, marked them with sticks, and fell asleep on the ground. The next morning, they walked all the way back to the office, to make sure their homestead claim was official. They bought some tools and headed back to their plots again. A well-intentioned, if condescending, reporter from the LA Times marveled at the spectacle of the, quote, gray-haired woman with her pathetically slight figure going out into the mountain wilds to build herself a home with her hands and without a man. But within four months and without any assistance, 
from a man. The duo cleared the land, built a cabin, dug a well, and cultivated a garden of lettuce, peas, radishes, corn, and potatoes. They proved up their claim and received the land patents free and clear in 1912 and 1913. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dan Coppell. Um, I just uh, led a two-day walk to this spot here, so I'm easily the smelliest writer who's ever uh, read here. Uh, my essay was about the California Cycleway, a bicycle freeway that actually uh, was partially built um, from Pasadena to downtown L.A. in 1898. Um, it's a forensic uh, look at that, so I'll just read one paragraph uh, about the demise of the cycleway. Over the next two decades, Dobbins tried mightily to complete his route, but the bike boom was ending. In 1901, the Pearson's article appeared, leaving the impression that the pathway was complete. The bike riders were zipping between the two cities, except when they were stopping to dine, gamble, and take in the spectacular views. But in reality, the cycleway was doomed. In 1902, an entrepreneur named Ransom Olds introduced a cheap, reliable motor car, the Oldsmobile. A year later, Henry Ford began producing his first internal combustion engines. The Pasadena section of the cycleway stood unused deteriorating, and in 1908, the California Supreme Court ruled that Dobbins had to return some of the land he'd received via eminent domain. A year later, under the threat of losing more property, Dobbins made a last-ditch proposal for the route, which he'd rechristened the airline. This time, it would be a monorail from Pasadena to Los Angeles. For a decade, Dobbins pushed the project, and on March 30, 1919, the citizens of Los Angeles voted on it. Dobbins lost. Thank you. My name is Sylvia Sukup. Um, living in Los Angeles was never my dream. In fact, I had to move here twice before the transplant finally took. I attribute the success of my second attempt at bonding with L.A. to finding my village within the metropolis. Like newly arrived immigrant Jews before me, I went shul shopping, and I was surprised at the number of synagogue doors that were open to me as an out lesbian. Why more than a dozen years ago did I become Jewish? Um, Perhaps the most compelling reason is that I, be I became Jewish because I'm gay, a fact that hit me with sudden and immutable force in my first grade classroom at St. Catherine's Elementary School in Reading, Pennsylvania. I fell in love with a girl named Stephanie, who was smart and funny and outgoing and so generous with her attention to me that it made my loner tomboy's heart ache. Her long legs defied the confines of our plaid skirt uniforms and her dark hair, cut straight and serious across the bangs, fell in two jaunty braids past her shoulders where every day I resisted touching them as she sat in the seat in front of mine. I continued to fall in love with girls in, uh, in junior high, in high school, in college till finally I stopped resisting. Judaism welcomes the stranger and so does Los Angeles. Both exist beyond the centers of tradition power outside of mainstream historical narratives and identities. Judaism and Los Angeles are both big tent outposts, intensely absorbed in self-definition while forever open to newcomers, resisting permanence. Judaism and Los Angeles are always in the act of becoming. Hi, I'm Jason Brown. Uh, I write about paranoid histories. <laughs> My essay is about the fortifications and catacombs of Los Angeles, and uh, this part is about the gold hunt and the search for the lizard tunnels. 
So George went back to the county supervisors to explain what he was really looking for. In the guttering torchlight of their chambers, he told them of a forgotten race, thousands of years old, who used their advanced technology to dig an underground fortress beneath the hills of Los Angeles. This mighty lizard-shaped bunker was built to withstand a gathering cataclysm, a fire in the sky that threatened their entire civilization. But their fortress did not hold. They were wiped out. And all that remained of them were golden tablets buried beneath Los Angeles, inscribed with memories they tried to save for a future they would never see. Upon hearing this explanation, the county supervisors smiled grimly and nodded their cowled heads with a sibilant affirmation. My name is Charles Hood. I wrote about trees. Los Angeles began to look like Los Angeles by the early 1900s. Each day, the ships and railroads brought new plants while enterprising people of many ethnicities nursed them, sold them, planted them, watered them. And more water was coming, as everybody knew. The year before the aqueduct opened in 1913, exotic trees were as popular as new model iPhones. Prices dropped, sales boomed, you could buy a three-foot-tall jacaranda for 35 cents, and an even better bargain, a eucalyptus sapling cost barely half that. People wanted magnolias, but at first they were too expensive, no matter. If Texas won't work, try Mexico. If Mexico won't work, try Australia. George Irvine in 1888 imported 12,000 eucalyptus seedlings at 15 bucks per thousand. The new quote-unquote mahogany of California, all this eucalyptus was going to be, other than it turns out the oil makes the tree explode in wildfires and the grain twists up more contrary than a mule on crank. Okay, so much for the lucrative timber franchise, but they do grow fast and they make okay windbreaks, so what the hell, have at it. Pretty soon eucalyptus were everywhere as they still are today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jen Hoffer. My essay is titled Under the Radar and Off the Charts, Undocumentation in Los Angeles. Any city is multiple cities, but Los Angeles, with its vast dispersed terrain, immigrant communities from all over the world, and penchant for self-reinvention, is more multiple than most. The various cities that are Los Angeles shift in and out of recognizability. Undocumentation might refer to things we don't see because we don't have a way to conceptualize them. It might delineate things that evade or exceed official impulses to count or map. It might signal sites and lives that are documented one way and manifest in another. The script as conventionally written no longer pertains. Living without the requisite legal documents entails very real limitations. At the same time, undocumentation can function as a space of autonomy and agency outside the confines of official sanction. The Public Policy Institute of California reports that our state is home to the largest number of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. Of those, the largest number is in Los Angeles. 
The term undocumented can be understood and critiqued from a variety of perspectives. In April 2013, the Associated Press changed their style book to remove the terms illegal immigrant and undocumented immigrant to avoid labeling and to foster precision. People in Los Angeles without legal immigration papers use a variety of terms to describe themselves. Sin papeles, without papers, undocumented, undocu-queer, out of status, and even illegal used proudly. The problem is with the law, not the person, so being illegal in relation to an unjust law can be a political statement. E grew up using the term wetback until political consciousness caused a shift to undocumented, then to undocumented and unafraid, and then to an expansive and celebratory sense of what E laughingly calls undocu-everything. M, a bespectacled grandmother and fierce immigrant rights activist, finds the term indocumentados, undocumented, derogatory, and prefers the term no documentados, not documented or without documents, as it signals something a person does not possess, rather than something the person is or is not. Thanks. Hello. Oh, I have to adjust this a little bit. I'm Linnell George, and my essay is about, oh my goodness, hello, uh, my essay is about um, radio. <laughs> and I wanted to see if one could map Los Angeles by radio air. Um, and the uh, chap the chapter, the um, paragraph I'm going to read is from the section of the piece uh, about a musician named Little Willie G., Radio could take you places, physically and emotionally. All it took was four stations on your presets. KFWB, KRLA, KGFJ, KBCA, and the long stretch and a long stretch of an evening. DJs Huggy Boy, Art LeBeau, Tommy B filtered over the speakers and narrated the evening. Drive-ins, casual restaurants that offered car hop service were destinations, drawing LA teens from all reaches of the basin. Willie enumerates the hodads, the stalkers, the cholos, the wannabe cholos, all would pull into these fluorescent lit oases and turn the volume up. They traveled from Laverne, Azusa, Glendora, and Cucamonga before it was Rancho. He recalls that all the cars would be tuned to one station, but if one car changed, found some other good song, suddenly we'd all drift on down there too. Thank you. Hi. Uh, I'm Michael Jaime Becerra, and my contribution to, to Latitudes is an essay called Speakeasy Tacos, which is based on my experience working with a family of taco caterers who work out of their house in the city of Omani. And this is the opening to that essay. Your family makes it all by hand. The meat, beans and rice, nopales, and potato salad. A large platter of freshly cut fruit, garnishes of finely minced white onions and cilantro, and two kinds of salsa red and green, one spice enough to thrill the palate, one for those who prefer to be set aflame, because it is better to make your clients sweat and suffer than to hear overhear veiled insults about the salsa being tasty, but not hot. (laughs) 
My name is David Dice. I am the staff cartographer at California State University, Northridge, and the cartographer for this book. And I want to take my few minutes here to send some thanks out, first of all, to the 19 authors who provided the canvas on which for me to create these maps. Um, the staff at Heyday, especially Ashley Ingram and Diane Lee, um, and Patricia especially, and Malcolm as well, for having the faith in me to uh, take this project on. Um, it takes a little bit of faith to hand 19 maps over to a relative unknown, and uh, they did that, and I had an absolutely fabulous time doing it, and I hope you enjoy reading them. I've tried to bake in as much information as I possibly could. Um, I want to make them exploratory uh, experiences so you can discover things as you read through them, um, so I hope everyone enjoys them, and thank you again, everyone. So I'm Malcolm, the publisher of this, and uh, there are a couple of things that I want to say. And I th am I the last person? Yes. Okay. There are a couple of things that I want to say. <laughs> and one of them is that among the books we're doing is a book on Dorothea Lang. This is the 50th anniversary of Paul Taylor's handing over the archive to the Oakland Museum. So I've been reading about Dorothea Lang. And when she was teaching photography at one point, she would send students out with this injunction. Do not photograph to confirm what you know photograph to explore. And I think this is a book that does not confirm all these cliches that we have about Los Angeles. It's exploring new worlds. The other thing that she mentioned, she quoted a, I think it was an Arabic state saying that the mind can't see that the eye can't see what the the eye is blind to what the mind can't see and there's something about I think as a publisher our work is in the human imagination and it's to expand the human imagination and this is what I think this book does the other thing that I want to say is that Literature, that reading is the most intimate of all the arts in some ways. That a writer sits alone for maybe two or three years writing a book. At the other end is a reader sitting alone and reading this book. There's the sense of a voice transmitted from the author to the reader that is so direct and so intimate. And it seems to be so lonely. As a publisher, I'm aware of to get that damn voice from the author to the reader is a three-ring circus. That, that we end up with bookstores like this, we end up with editors, we end up with designers, we end up with sales reps, we end up with, with reviewers, we end up with all kinds of people that are involved in it. And what I love about books is not just the book itself, but the community that exists around the book. And what we've built, and I think what this book is remarkable for is the community that was built up around it. And I hope to preserve it. And, and I want to mention that Patricia is the soul of this thing, that she has got the most, she's not only a great editor, but she's got the most amazing social grace. It's, it's absolutely profligate that, she, that she's out in the world. That we, 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 she, we, We've worked together for about 15 years when we go to a party together. At the end of the hour, she's met everybody in the room. And there's something about holding this one together and holding all these people together that's been absolutely marvelous. So thank you.
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.